All views and opinions expressed in this podcast may lead to learning. All information provided is for educational and developmental purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for a growth mindset. Before taking action, please consult your motivation. Welcome to Learn Your English Podcast, brought to you by Learn Your English. I think the biggest thing I would like people to do, and teachers and learners to do, is push publishers to, to produce, to allow people to publish textbooks that are task-based and not be frightened of it. Because a huge number of teachers out there, a new, huge number of teacher trainers would like, understand why task-based learning is good. But because the books, a lot of books are still very structurally based, especially books in overseas countries, a lot of them are very structurally based. They feel they have to teach the other way. Teacher Talking Time is created with support from you, our listeners. If you like the show, you like what we do, please subscribe in your favorite app, tell a friend, and leave us a review. Believe us, it goes a long way. If you're interested in contributing to the creation of the show, we also have a tip jar on Patreon. The link to that, all our social media, and our website is in the show notes. For more resources on today's topic, you can check out our podcast page online, learnyourenglish.net slash podcast. Thanks for listening. And now, back to the show. Hi, everybody. My name is Kimberly, and I'm from Malawi. This is Teacher Talking Time to Learn Your English Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Teacher Talking Time podcast hosted by the Learn Your English team. Today's guest is a teacher, trainer, language educator, and writer with extensive experience working overseas. She has worked in Cyprus, Iran, Singapore, China, India, Sri Lanka, Malaysia, the Middle East, South America, Europe, basically the entire world. <laughs> she was also one of the main tutors at Aston University in the UK, where she taught for 12 years in the TESOL and TSP programs. She's also an award-winning yeah. writer for books like English for Primary Teachers and Teachers Exploring Tasks in English Language Teaching, which, by the way, won the British Council Innovations Award back in 2006. She truly embodies the lifelong learning mentality and is also fluent in many languages, including French, which she speaks really well, Spanish, German, Greek, Italian, and Farsi. She co-wrote, along with her husband, Dave, one of the most influential books in English language teaching, doing task-based teaching. She's been researching and training teachers in task-based language teaching for almost 30 years. Something, I would argue, that gives her a very unique perspective that has made her one of the most influential figures in the ELT world. A clear and rational voice whose ideas have been discussed by some of the most visible and well-respected authors and experts in the field, including Peter Skian and Michael Lewis. Additionally, she has recently completed and published her husband's last book, Winning the Grammar Wars, What Grammar Really Is and How We Use It. So please help me in welcoming the one and only Jane Willis. <laughs> what a wonderful introduction. Thank you, Leah. 
Yes. Uh, well, Jane, thanks for uh, joining us. This has been, uh, Mike and I were just talking before you joined us. We were just saying how, how nervous we are to be talking to you and, <laughs> and how exciting this is. We're having oh, it's just mixed feelings. It's just yeah. excitement. So, Jane, perhaps we could talk a little bit about your beginning, your early teaching experience. How did you get into the industry, into English language teaching? Oh, well, um, yes, I never wanted to be a teacher. <laughs> my mum and quite a lot of my aunts were teachers. And I definitely decided I'd have enough of school in university by the time I left. And uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I applied to voluntary service overseas. That's like your Peace Corps or CUSO volunteers, hoping to be sent to South America so I could learn Spanish. I'd always loved languages. Um, and uh, yes, well, they didn't send me to South America to do social work. They sent me to Ghana to teach French. Okay. So, um, and then in Ghana, because Ghana is in West Africa, and there are a lot of countries, all, in fact, all the countries around Ghana are French speaking. They were all French colonists. So there were, in fact, quite a lot of Africans in Ghana who spoke very good French. So gradually I was relieved of my French teaching duties and pushed into English teaching. And I had not one clue about English teaching. Um, and I was teaching literature, Thomas Hardy, Mayor of Casterbridge, all kinds of stuff that was difficult. Wow. Um, but I quite enjoyed it. And Ghanaian students were absolutely lovely, really lovely. Um, no discipline problems. They were nearly all first generation educated. Most of them were older than I was. Um, you know, it was just a dream, a teacher's dream, really. Um, so that's how I started teaching. Okay. I'm curious, when you were teaching, when you started your career teaching, were you, would you say that you were following a PPP methodology? Were you subscribing to that? Oh, God, that hadn't been invented then. Right. <laughs> I mean... You were in survival mainly, mode? <laughs> it was mainly grammar translation, I think. Okay. No, right. I did know a little bit about direct method teaching. Right. Um, so and the textbooks we had for French were basically conversations right. that, kid, that we practiced with conversations. But I did a little bit of um, sort of things like, you know, what's this, it's a pen type stuff. Right. Um, yeah, for the English, it was, a lot of it was literature. They were all, it was more like teaching a second language and correcting mistakes so that they would get their exams right and so on. Um, no, the PPP didn't come until I until much later when I was in. Um, let's think, where would I have been for PPP? Um, in Tehran. Oh, okay. That was a bit later, because after Ghana, I went back to York to learn that, to do a diped, a diploma in education. Right. Um, and York was where I had my first taste of psychology of education and second language acquisition. And that's what got me quite interested in how people learn languages. Right. Um, from there, we went to Cyprus. And I just taught, I've taught French and English using textbooks all the time. And I did some young learner teaching there. And then, um, yes, and then 
from Cyprus went to Iran. Right. That was and in the 80s, in, right? Yeah, it was in the 80s. And it was there that we were talking about present, practice, and production. And the third P was the most important thing. <laughs> and it was the thing the teachers never managed to do because... Um, we, we're laughing you know, because we have our own name for that, that third P, actually. What do you call the third P? Leo? We call it the pray because we pray that the students are actually going to use the language. <laughs> but we find that most of the time they actually never get around to using the language. Like you Why said, if you that? get there, if you get there, that's one thing. But then if, if they're actually using the language you've been working with, that's a, that's a whole other kettle so, of fish. I want to circle well, back because, here. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, go because ahead. it's impossible. If you've just been practiced the going to future, it's impossible to take your mind off form focus and switch it to meaning focus. Uh, um, so if kids, if children want to please teacher and do what they've been taught, then they'll have a whole conversation about going to. And I saw this right. in a German classroom once. There was a little boy going back through his notebook and he got to a page which said, will future. And he just read all the examples but changing will to going to. And then <laughs> he, he rubbed his head and he said, I might going to visit my gran. I oh. might playing football. I might going to play football. Because he knew he wasn't sure. Right. So he was hypothesizing, right? So he was able to observe mm -hmm. something and then start hypothesizing. As you said, switching to meaning. But I want to circle back before we, we start talking about that. In 81, you wrote a book, which I also have a copy of. Um, and you were in Iran, I think it was Teaching English Through English. Oh, yes. I have a copy of that. It's, uh, yeah. it's very valuable, just like my co-build copies here, but we'll get there. Can you tell us a little bit of, I was going to ask you that, like, can you tell us a little bit more about your, your motivation to actually write that book? Mm. Well, in Iran, um, part of my job was teacher training. And I would visit schools in Tehran and um, there were about 40 teachers on the program. It was the first RSA certificate for teachers of English, diploma for teachers of English overseas. Um, in those days it was called the DOT, the right. Diploma for Overseas Teachers of English. It's changed now. And we had two teachers in each school that we visited and they just didn't speak English in the classroom. They had classes of maybe 40, 50, 60 students. And the whole class, most of them, the whole class was in Farsi with English, the English they were teaching in English. Right. And when I asked them, I mean, when they spoke to me, when they came to training sessions, their English was quite good. And I said, well, why don't you speak English in the classroom? And they said, oh, because we don't know classroom English. Oh, right. um, you know, they were saying those that did try were saying turn the page instead of turn over right. and uh, attention rather than now listen or something like that. <laughs> Almost like military English. <laughs> yeah. And they weren't chatting in English. They weren't doing anything in English. And I knew that they needed to chat and, and, and you know, so they had some exposure to English. And so basically I started writing a phrase book for them. 
but then it grew much more than a phrase book. And it grew because you can't do methodology without English and English without methodology. So that's how that started. Mm. And then Longman, I think a Longman representative came to the office in the British Council where I was working. And he said, well, what are you doing at the moment? And I explained I was writing a phrase book for teachers. And he said, oh, we might like to publish that. So that's how it got published. Nice. Huh. I was just thinking now. Um, we have something now in English. Um, I think a lot of professors are doing this. It's English as a medium of instruction. I feel like mm -hmm. there are a lot of similarities between teaching English through English with English as a medium of instruction. I don't yes. Know. Yeah. Um, I wrote about 20 years later, I wrote a book for primary teachers. Mm -hmm. um, have you, I don't know whether you know that one. I, um, I never read that one, but I'm, English, I'm aware of it's, it. It's called English for Primary Teachers mm -hmm. and a classroom of, but that again is very linked with methodology and all the activities in that are in fact tasks, but we didn't use the word tasks. Um, we kept it very, very simple. The problem with a lot of these great books, uh, Jane, is that a lot of them are out of print. Mm. That's the unfortunate well, that's not, thing. Yeah. Yeah. English that for Primary Teachers is very much in print. It's selling really mm. well. Good, good. I'm, we're we're going to put that on the show notes for sure. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, and yes, and of course, Leo, you mentioned earlier the, uh, the, the, your work with Cobalt and the Cobalt Project, um, which, uh, which was definitely influential in my own life as a teacher. Uh, what I remember mm -hmm. when I graduated from my first TEFL course, it was called at that time, Teaching English as a Foreign Language, part of the uh, necessary kind of toolkit the, um, the instructor recommended we put together was um, included actually uh, the Cobalt Grammar, English Grammar and the Cobalt Dictionary right. itself. Yep. And, um, and actually just for our audience, bonus points, 10 bonus points for whoever can tell us what uh, Cobalt stands for. But uh, of course, we actually do have quite an astute audience. So of course, we're talking about the Collins of Birmingham University International Language Database, which is of course a corpus of 20 million words stored and uh, retrievable uh, electronically. And just some background, Jane, before we go into the questions. Um, so basically it was John Sinclair was the founding editor-in-chief of the first edition of the Cobalt Dictionary. And of course, he's an outstanding linguist and scholar and professor of modern English language at the University of Birmingham um, for most mm -hmm. of his career, and was one of the very first modern corpus linguistics. And Leo and I are both very interested in corpus. That's language. right. Um, and he led the, uh, the Cobalt Project in lexical computing, funded, of course, by Collins that revolutionized, revolutionized um, lexicography in um, the 1980s, which resulted in the creation of the largest uh, corpus of the English language, of English language texts in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, as Leo hinted at earlier, um, you and your husband, Dave Willis, co-authored the Collins Cobalt English course, um, which was actually the first task-based course with a lexical syllabus. And Leo's holding it up oh, there, in, in the background yeah, sure. there. And, and of course, you, you, you set out to make full use of this um, of the, the corpus and uh, the course was shaped by its actual existence. And I guess my question is, um, could you talk a little bit about the genesis of the course? Yes. 
Um, how it actually started was a letter on a blue airmail pro forma from John <laughs> okay. Sinclair saying, um, we think you and Dave could write a very good language course based on the co-build corpus. It would have a lexical syllabus. Would you be up for it? And that's all it said. <laughs> so we wrote back in those days, that was before email, remember? Um, in those ah, days, right. we, we didn't know what a lexical syllabus was. So we wrote back, we thought, well, it needs some grammar in it, surely. Um, we wrote back saying, what is a lexical syllabus? Oh. Another blue airmail form goes flying back to England. Um, we were in Singapore at the time. So we were quite a long way from England. Right. And then another blue letter came back saying, <laughs> a lexical syllabus looks at the most frequent words of English and the words that they combine with um and the grammar of the words and the phrases and so on um and that would be your syllabus so it would be a syllabus of the most frequent words of english their meanings and their uses and the patterns that they're involved with and uh i think connected to that is i, I know in the course description talks a lot about um that the course itself respects the natural patterns, so not only frequent, but the natural patterns of language. And what, what exactly is meant by that? The natural patterns are usually the most frequent patterns. Um, yes. They're the ones, well, in spoken language, they would be the phrases that people use all the time, like the phrase all the time, <laughs> right. I didn't have to think about all the time. I learned it as a stock phrase. They, the chunks of English, the phrases, the little, um, I think John Sinclair used to talk about pre-assembled chunks. Mm -hmm. So if, and some of them are very, very fixed. So if I said to you, um, as a matter of, you would end up with, what word would you say as a matter of probably fact, right? Fact. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the matter of yeah, fact. Yeah. So these are very, very common phrases and common frames um, that we use naturally every day. Hmm. And in written discourse, even in academic writing, there are certain phrases that are used um, all the time. Um, the textual uses of English. To go back to the point I made earlier, um, you know, there are different uses of language that tie together mm -hmm. um, academic texts. Um, so those would all be the, the commonly occurring phrases. And of course, they've all got the common words in. So if you use, if you pick out the common words, so that as, as, is very, very common. So you'll find, as a matter of fact, and of is very common. So right. you'll find that they come up in the corpus very, very frequently. I don't know, has that answered your question? Yes, yeah. yes, certainly, certainly. And, and I think tied to that, because I know when Leo and I 
use a lot of corpus in our teaching, what we're really doing is thinking about exposing um, authentic language or, or showing our students, like you know, basically as, as, as you talk about and as Dave talks about in, in the Winning the Grammar Wars, it's, it's about um, letting them look at the multiple examples of the language so that they can kind of make their own rules and then base and then decide and make choices on how they themselves would use those mm. uh, expressions. And, yeah. and I think, um, so I guess a couple kind of related questions would be maybe, what is the value of exposure to natural patterns? And I guess another thing would be, why did you decide to go with um, like this kind of unscripted natural English versus something more prescriptive? Well, because if you can get people talking spontaneously about something and interacting spontaneously, all these very frequent natural phrases will come up mm -hmm. at some point in a syllabus. So you can't say, this is what we're going to learn today. This is the language we're going to learn today. We talk about, this is the topic we're going to talk about. And if you isolate, say, 10 topics for a course and you set up your tasks, um, your task sequences carefully, you are likely to get the top thousand words of English and their most common meanings and uses. Because and, they'll drop off anyway. Right, right. And, and I think... I think, you know, that's the, the simplicity of that is its greatest strength, right? Like, for example, mm. if you're focusing on those most common words, um, such as, you know, see and give and keep and, you know, those, those words that carry the most important patterns of language. Mm. Yes, then, yes. Right, then, then it's going to become a lot easier, so I guess, as a teacher to prioritize um, or, or to, to choose topics. Um, that would kind of naturally let that language emerge. Um, yet, <laughs> yet, um, there seems to be this over-reliance on kind of intuition when we design teaching materials, rather than this kind of research-based approach to, to um, designing research materials, or sorry, yeah, classroom materials. And I just, as someone who's designed the course, or the Cobalt English course, um, how do you think approaching textbook and course design in that way um, affected the design of future course books that came after it? Um, well, I know a lot of people took our tasks from CoBuild and put them into their textbooks. There are some almost identical ones. <laughs> wow. Um, however, there are very few textbooks on the market that actually start with a topic and a task yes. and end up with a focus on language. Right. Most of the textbooks still have, aha, we're going to do the future today in their heads. What task can we think of that will make them talk about the future? Or we shall do the passive, so we need something for the passive. Right. Rather than thinking, well, what would be a, you know, what would be ways into um, where do you meet the passive tense? Let's look at some texts which are normally in the passive. Right. right. Um, and it would be basically text-based because we don't talk much about pass using passive tense. So it's looking to see 
what yes you, you asked about i'm um, going off the point um you yeah. asked about whether it's influenced other textbooks um much less than i thought it would basically i, think, I, I yeah i just wanted your your input on that because i i i would i would agree like i think it's kind of frustrating and we we Leo and I were chatting about this earlier, we were, and I think you, um, it, this actually might have, we might have read this in the uh, in Winning the Grammar Wars, but like even if you look at the use of in as one example, right? So like less than mm -hmm. half of the uses of in have anything to do with time or space, yet it's always taught as time and space. This is how we use the preposition in, like, right? So why are we still teaching it? And, and why are we still... Why. Why are we still relying on these grammar McNuggets? Yeah. As you said, like the teaching of will, let's just teach it and then move on to the next one without any real meaning or focus yeah. on um, of uh, Well, that's, that's yeah, that's why we came up with the task-based stuff because um, you've got the corpus there, you've got the huge database of language at CoBuild, but the examples were far too difficult for students to understand. And taken out of context, they don't mean anything anyway. So we had to give, um, I mean, teachers need to give a specific context for learners to learn a language in, to talk about, to read about. And they need to, they have to be engaged in that topic. And then whatever language comes out of that can be studied and analysed. And I don't think other textbooks have actually done that they haven't used spontaneous recordings of tasks they've tended to do an interview which is very controlled or they're frightened i think a lot of teachers are frightened of using spontaneous language and and, and um, i think oh sorry no please yeah. well no but the very interesting thing was textbooks are still and publishers say that teachers want controlled language because they're frightened of that spontaneous language um, so it's best to keep the students well controlled so the teachers can cope and those are the kind of books that teachers want but right. actually um, I'm doing a research project at the moment with someone at um, UCLan University of Lancashire University College of Lancashire and it shows that teacher trainers actually want to use much more task-based teaching but they can't train teachers to do it because the textbooks are still using a structural syllabus. Yeah, I think in a way, Jane, textbooks, they were designed this way to control teachers and control students. What they're doing is a disservice to teachers because it's de-skilling teachers. And Mike yes. and I talk a lot about this is that if a teacher has a very high level of language awareness and he understands a task-based framework, he doesn't need anything else to teach. No. That's it. It's yeah. all you need. High level of language awareness. You're able to look at language. You're able to deconstruct it, to analyze it, to show it to your students, to explain it. And then you just do that within a task, a task cycle. Um, yeah. And, but I think one of the things I wanted to say about the co-build, I have all my copies here. And I know one day they're going to be, they were very valuable. I still use them in my teaching. Um, the course book was, was rather ambitious in that it departed from this traditional synthetic mm. syllabus with the traditional what Thornbury calls the grammar McNuggets, right? 
So the favorite, <laughs> the favorite uh, contrast, like the difference between the simple past and the present perfect, which seems to be the number one thing that people are still teaching. If you go on YouTube, if you look at language teaching, that seems to be the number one thing that people look for. Past perfect, uh, present perfect, and simple past. Um, and one of the things you and, and Dave said is that this has less to do with meaning in some objective sense than with the speaker's or reader's choice. So my question to you then is, what's the advantage of dealing with language in that way as opposed to the traditional way? Well, it's how language is actually used, isn't it? Yeah. The traditional way is looking at something decontextualized. The teacher has to make up some kind of context for using this clever, you know, for using the target structure. And that's actually quite difficult to do. Right. Um, and then when the learners leave the classroom, they can't speak because there's never a conversation that asks, that uses 20 examples of the present perfect in one conversation. Right. Like we the always, present yeah. perfect yeah. you use when you're talking about the future very often. Will you post the letter? Have you written it yet? Have you written that letter? Will you post it for me? Yeah. Right. Or just Have like you done this? No, I'm going to do it tomorrow. So, yeah. yeah, so they're not used in the way that they are taught in traditional textbooks. I think that's a great so point. The, yeah, it's, it's quite funny. It's no wonder that children leave school without being able to speak English we're if they're talk taught like that. that. Yeah, we're going to get to that too. Yes. I want to talk about that. What are you going to say, Mike? No, I, I would just, I think the present perfect is a great example because one of the classic PPP, the, the prey, uh, stage um, tasks is okay work with a partner and talk about what you've done <laughs> but like it only it only ever works out to be that first sentence oh I've done this and then you talk about what you did and how it went it's like it's a conversation opener we tell our that's students, right it's a conversation yeah. opener yeah. everything else yeah. is in the simple past um, now I want to ask you a question because I don't know this but this is more of a out of curiosity uh, we all know that Cold Build was a very ambitious series back in the 80s, but it, uh, from what I've researched, it never really took off or experienced the success it should have experienced. So my question to you is, why do you think that was the case? Is it because teachers were not trained to deal with spontaneous language? What would you, what would you, what would you say about that? No, I think most people have said it was two new things in one course book. Oh, there was task-based okay. teaching what's that oh that's dangerous oh that sounds very adventurous i don't think we could do that um and where's the grammar syllabus right you know it doesn't right. do this it doesn't contrast present perfect and past tense um so this is a lexical syllabus so teachers had two things teach teachers had two new things to cope with and the first teachers that um the teachers in the pilot scheme were helped in a way because they were primed um, by the people who were persuading them to pilot. So they had a little bit of background. Mm. So they knew that they would try the tasks with whatever language the, the learners had already learned from earlier lessons. And then they would 
do the tasks and report them and then they would do the language. So in the pilot groups, um, there was a lot of excitement about it. But of course, when it went, when it got published, the teachers looked at this book, the pages were quite crowded because there was a lot of data in it. It was a language rich book. Very. Um, and Crash, where's the grammar? You know, it wasn't <laughs> written, it didn't look like it didn't look grammar. like typical. Although we had grammar boxes and we had it wasn't like they when they tried to match it to the local syllabus, which was all some and any. And right. then when they looked at any, they found that any can be used in positive sentences too. Oh dear me, you know, it's all a bit dangerous this. Um <laughs> And I know a lot of teachers did a presentation at the beginning. They added, they, had, they felt they had to add presentation so that they could do the task. But then you don't do the task using one grammar structure, do you? No. You know, so it's they, like just having, didn't, yeah. they just didn't have. I mean, if they'd done a presentation of the vocabulary, of the topic vocabulary, that would have been fine. But no, they needed... As something solid, something to actually, they were just so used to being teachers rather than being learning facilitators and oh, teaching at right. the end of the cycle. Losing, and I think that, that sorry, yeah, please. Losing control, they were also frightened of losing control. I was about to say that. When you've got, when you've got a class of 40 or 50 or 60 students in pairs, it is quite noisy. And who knows what the kids at the back are doing. Right. Now, it's the only way they're going to get speaking practice, so it's absolutely essential that they do a lot of pair work and group work. But keeping control of that, you know, I think teachers felt they weren't teaching enough for their money. They weren't earning their money, really. They weren't teaching enough. Mm -hmm. But we all know that teaching doesn't lead to learning. I don't know why there's so much emphasis on this teaching and very little emphasis or very little focus on, on the learning. I actually have a little extract here that I would like to read. Um, this is from the co-build. This is how the learner learns. Learners do not learn the language a bit at a time. They are trained to look critically at their own language experience and examine and analyze by making descriptive statements after inspecting samples of language. There are no grammar rules to be presented and learned. Pupils produce their own descriptive and explanatory statements. These different kinds of languages exercises are, of course, of particular interest to the classroom teacher. Mm -hmm. I don't remember that. Was that in an introduction somewhere? <laughs> yeah. I find that the introduction is a methodology book in itself. <laughs> yes, it is. It had to be. But, um, yes, you can't change people's views of how people learn. Um, overnight and there are still lots of people that lots of teachers that feel the need for security and not letting go of the reins let's take a quick break we'll be right back developing as a teacher isn't easy it's even more challenging doing it solo if you are looking to join a passionate community of teachers who love to learn then the learn your english teaching membership can help the Learn Your English membership allows teachers to develop what they want when they want to through monthly challenges, webinars, reflection tasks, 
and application to your individual teaching context, the membership brings like-minded people together from all around the world. If you love improving and taking risks in education, then join their growing community of teaching professionals today. Find out how at learnyourenglish.net backslash memberships. Yo, ¿qué tal, gente? ¿Cómo va? Mi nombre es Jan Salef. Soy de Rusia, vivo en Ecuador, profesor español. Y estás escuchando a The Teacher Talking Time, The Learn Your English Podcast. And I do speak English too. What's up, my people? What's up, everyone? I hope everyone's, everyone's doing okay. Uh, I'm Ian. My name is Ian Salef. I'm from Russia, living in Ecuador in this moment. And uh, you are listening to The Teacher Talking Time, The Learn Your English Podcast. <laughs> I, about 30 years ago, I did a series of talks called Letting Learners Learn, Ooh. Ooh, rather than that. teaching. Um, about? And task-based task -based learning is looking at it from the point of view of the students. Um, but then, you see, we had task-based teaching. <laughs> mm. And it's quite interesting that, wow. that there are those two, two terms. Yeah, so this is kind of the difference between long, because we I've read Long's copy of test-based language teaching and second language education, actually test-based language learning and teaching and second language um, education. Um, so I was going to ask you, like, if we're going to jump into test-based language mm -hmm. teaching now, but before we talk about that, I want to ask you this, Jane, how did you learn about test-based language teaching? I know a lot of it come, came from uh, Prabhu's work with the Bangalore project. How much of mm. that influenced your version of task-based learning? And perhaps you could talk a little bit about how you started, like your, your early, early beginnings of task-based learning. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, um, we went from Iran to Singapore. And Iran was where we discovered that the third P, the one you call pray, <laughs> present <laughs> practice, production, the third P very rarely worked uh. and that students didn't feel that they could just forget what they'd learned and well just just use any language they had. So we knew that wasn't working and we knew that thousands of learners, well hundreds of thousands of learners are leaving school without being able to speak the language they're learning or they're being taught rather. Um, and when <laughs> right. we got to Singapore, um, I think we'd been in Singapore about a few months and Prabhu came to visit. Okay. And we'd read about his Bangalore project, but it didn't really twig what it was about until he came and presented a session at the British Council for British Council teachers. Okay. And he said, well, we're teaching English, but we're not teaching English. We're not teaching any grammar at all. We're just doing tasks and there's no focus on teaching grammar we do correct them yes we do we do we do correct we don't do any pair work but we give them tasks to do so we said well what of tasks what do you mean and he said well um and he gave us examples of like um going from uh going from uh delhi to um i'm talking about the old times now going to delhi to madras it would have been delhi madras on a train okay so these are the timetables so work out from where you live how to get from where you live to Madras. All right, so look at the timetables. What about if you went from so-and-so? And so he would do the task 
with the with the children. So he made us do this. Mm. Um, we did different tasks. So he he did the task with us first of all, getting us to talk. He talked it through, and then he gave us a written paragraph, which was, um, John lives in Madras and. Uh, someone lives in, um, and these are the bus timetables and the train timetables, and these are the fares and these are the prices. Um, and so John decided he wanted, and this is all written. So we had to look at this and we had to solve the problem, how they got from one place to the other. So we were reading English. We'd been listening to Prabhu um, talking about a task. Now we were reading. And then we had to think about how to do it ourselves. And we wrote the answers because he didn't do any pair work. Mm. So you asked a bit ago, what differences did you bring in? And we brought in pair work. Okay. He didn't okay. want to do pair work because he didn't want them to hear substandard English. Um. He wanted, he wanted to, them only to hear the good English of the teachers. Mm -hmm. I think my um, question, okay, go ahead. That was quite interesting. Mm -hmm. um, but we found that if you, so you asked earlier what differences were and if we took his model. So his model did not have pair work. We changed, we added pair work, but then we added the reporting section mm. so that if if students have to do a task and they do it using whatever english they can together it won't be like fluent speaker english um but if the teacher then has a chance to talk to them about what they've done in the task and to help them put it into a kind of reasonable language which is okay to tell the other learners in the class what they've done then they're getting a lot of teacher input anyway mm -hmm. and their language is being upgraded so during the report time in the task cycle so it goes task planning report so we added the planning and report right it's, so it's that they had a chance to not just use english the teach with the students together, but they had a chance with the teacher of extending that, correcting it using better words, and then telling the other learners in the class what they'd done and how they'd done it. So they did get a lot of exposure to better standard English. It's really interesting just hearing you describe that process because it makes me, we were chatting a little bit about, um, uh, rules, patterns, and words earlier, and oh, yes. um, the the different priorities that are listed there, right? The basic message. So it's kind of like that initial stage is the basic message, and then then there's this kind of focus on form, where there's a concern for the reader or the listener, right? And then mm. this final yes. reporting stage, as you said, um, where you're focused on the presentation of self, right? It's so neat to see the overlap mm. um, come out in those, yeah. And because it's more public, they right. feel natural need to be, to use better English. Yes, yes. Um, yes. And of course, nowadays, we just simply say to students in the class, right, record, you know, 
prepare a recording of your task summary or record your task results and then let everyone hear the recording. I mean, you can do that online very, very easily with online teaching. So if they record their reports and then they can play back online, that's also a good way of doing it. And the fact that it's recorded makes them think about using the right past tense endings or, or whatever. It's kind of that process of referencing and recycling, right? That um, yeah. they're going back, they're checking, and then they're, again, trying it again. And it's really, mm. yeah, it's really neat. Yeah. And you also have what I was going to say, and I think what really attracted me to task-based uh, teaching or language teaching or learning um, is this idea, Jane, but you said is that we're using language in different contexts for different reasons. Therefore, we're focusing, like you said, in the beginning, the initial stage with the task, they're focusing on meaning. With the report, it's more accuracy, right? And then there's a language analysis and all that. So I think my question to you then is going back to the pair work. Why did you decide to incorporate the pair work and what were you guys expecting to achieve with the incorporation of that pair work stage? Well, we felt they really did need a chance to, um, to speak and right. to speak focusing on meaning, to get their meaning across. Not just writing for the teacher the answers to the questions or the, the solution of the problem. Right. Um, and there, there was quite a lot of research in second language acquisition, wasn't there? Mm -hmm. um, about, yes, you need a lot of exposure, but you also need the interaction practice. Yes. Right. So you need exposure to the language in use in the kind of context that you are going to use it. What's it called? The interaction hypothesis, interaction. I think. Yes, yeah. yes. Michael Long. Um, yes. So um, we've, and, and the students liked doing that. Mm -hmm. They also liked getting it better enough to, to tell someone else about and That's writing a couple of drafts of, if they were writing, writing two or three drafts and correcting. Mm -hmm. I think that's a, bis yeah. that's a big kind of myth. That, sorry, Leo, but just because mm. Leo and I talk a lot about this, the only people that don't like repeating tasks or don't like the process of or repeating processes are teachers. I think students yeah. love the opportunity to go back and try yeah. a task again and to reframe. And yeah, no, that's, that's cycle, a different right? thing. Repeating tasks. Um, you need to repeat a task with somebody different so that you're still exchanging meaning. You're not just mm. doing it again because that's yeah. really boring. But if you find a different mm. partner to do it with or you change the task slightly, so it, it is really meaning. Thing. But that's, that's different. That comes right at the end of the cycle when you've already done your language focus. Mm -hmm. yes. So we've jumped ahead a bit. The, the reporting, um, Peter Skeen gets this wrong actually because um, he says doing the task in public. They're not redoing the task in public. They're reporting the results of the task in public. Um, yeah, so that's two different things. Mm -hmm. So reporting the task and then at the end of the whole framework, repeating the task. Um, and there's two things I want to say here. Mm. Um, coming back to how we changed from Prabhu, the other thing that Prabhu never did, of course, was to explain grammar or to let them look at grammar. Oh, he just uh -huh. corrected, you know, they were doing 
they were talking to him in English. They were doing the task with the teacher in English. Um, and he was, so the original, where we would be doing um, normally in twos, although with the teacher earlier on, beginners, you would do the teacher-led task, right. certainly, um, before they start doing any pair work. So the teacher's task, the teacher and the class would be interacting. But then when they get, when the teacher feel they can let go of the reins a little and they do tasks in twos, and in fact, you can do that almost from the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, but then, so one was the, um, the pair work, but the second one was putting in the form focus at the end. Right. So Prabhu would correct them when they were doing the task teacher-led. Yeah, this is when, when they were doing the teacher-led task at the rehearsal stage, Prabhu would correct them, um, but he wouldn't make them repeat the correction. He'd just rephrase what they said. On so the spot had, correction, Jane? On the spot, yes. Okay. Mm. So that if he said, um, what time do you leave, need to leave Madras? What train? And they said, ah, uh, the, 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 um, train uh um train uh leave uh two uh thirty um and he'd say yes the train leaves at two thirty that's right okay so he would just yes yeah, so, yeah. so they would hear lots of corrected english and mm. um, so that's the only time he focused on form. And when they were giving their written answers to the written tasks as well, he would correct and they would write out the correct ones. Mm. Um, but when we tried that out in Singapore, the first class I tried task-based learning was with a Japanese group, Japanese ladies, oh. whose husbands were working in Singapore and they were coming to English classes at the British Council. And of course, um, we did explain in Japanese how it was going to be different you know, how they were going to start off with doing tasks and stuff. But they really, really wanted some form focus at the end. So that was when we realized okay. we really had to give them something. Um, Krashen, I can remember Krashen, when he was talking, used to say they need to go away with a rule in their pocket. <laughs> <laughs> um, they need to leave the lesson knowing, they, knowing what they've learned. So we started introducing form focus with the Japanese learners. And that was when we started recording tasks with native speakers or fluent speakers of English. We recorded how, um, how fluent speakers would do that task. And we wrote it down, we transcribed it. So the Japanese ladies could read what they had heard. And then we did um, analysis activities based on the written script. Mm -hmm. um, so we included a form focus which Prabhu had never done mm, okay see this is all yeah this is trivia for me <laughs> all good stuff. um jane one of so we know this uh and what i was going to say about what you just said and this is um fascinating about task-based uh learning is is this idea that learners are learning the language by using they're not learning and then using, which seems to be the yes, premise that's right. behind uh, um, PPP. So one of the things that I often hear, because Mike and I, we do a lot of sessions, we do a lot, we're proponents of task-based education. Um, typically a task is followed by a focus on, as you said, the focus on form. So 
what a lot of teachers have said to us um, is that TBOT or test-based learning is very much like PPP, except that it's upside down. And I know you have written about this extensively, but I think a lot of people need to listen to this. So perhaps you could, perhaps we can rest the case here today and say that <laughs> TBL is not like PPP upside down. And perhaps you could tell our listeners why. Well, because PPP is very, very controlled language. And the language that students get are examples of made up language and rule abiding language that does not look like natural English. Okay, so if you start with a task and talking naturally about the topic, then they're getting natural sounding English. And you can do this very simply with beginners. Uh, um, mm. So you might just bring a bowl of fruit or a bag of shopping into the class and talk about the fruit and vegetables you bought. And then say, right, you know, see, so you might talk about that and then do some colors and then do how many and but they can do it, they can see someone talking about something in a very natural flowing way. It's so much richer. There is so much more language. And if learners learn through exposure, it's really important to give them exposure to something. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then when you look at the language, you've got so much more language to look at. You don't just do one grammar structure until they know it. Well, they'll never know it. Um, you do that, lots of useful So you do lots of useful phrases. Uh -huh. um, and you, if you're looking at spoken, the Japanese teachers, the Japanese, sorry, housewives, they were amazed because we don't speak in sentences. <laughs> right. They saw all these phrases your turn um what about you uh you know there's no they 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 picked up all these useful phrases quite quickly so that they were able to interact in english as well as talk about something in english mm -hmm. so they learn yeah, much more so ppp is much more restricted and controlled and rigid and it does not result in, I mean, the only way you might say it's, um, I know, I know we ended up thinking, well, actually it's PPP the right way round. Right. You start with, the, <laughs> you start with the praying, <laughs> you start with the production, you start with, but it is really free production. The task yeah. is free production, but it's not production of the grammatical structure. Right. It is, it is interactional natural interactional chat or natural interact re reacting to a text reading a text so it's really the right way up i think this actually addresses the other question that i was going to ask that if you thought it's possible to teach or to use tbl from a very beginner stages of language acquisition i think you, you mm. pretty much just answer that and i was looking here at your first lesson book because i love <laughs> the uh, introduction here and one of the things you said is this um jane that there is a need for real english english as it is actually used in the world today yeah. and i think that's what students are probably getting from from a test-based learning um approach to teaching and learning i would say yeah 
Yeah. Um, some people have claimed, and this is something that I wanted to ask you before we move on to talk about um, the book. Okay, just to come back to beginners, yeah. uh -huh. um, just to drop back to beginners, sure. um, quite a lot of people do ask me questions on my website about beginners and there is a really mm. there is a chapter about beginners in the first book i ever wrote about task-based learning in the framework for task-based learning mm. book yes um so i think doing task-based teaching not many teachers were teaching beginners the teachers that gave their examples of tasks in that they're really good and they're, they're very extensive but there's not that much about teaching beginners but in the framework book there is and i've done quite a lot of beginner teaching using that technique now it's more like show and tell it's more like no not show and tell it's more like um oh what do you call it sort of experiential learning isn't it mm, okay. getting, getting children yeah. to do things getting them to listen and do listen and do things listen and draw pictures listen right. and play bingo there's so many very very simple games and um, activities you can do. Um, I know we put a lot into our book for primary teachers. There's lots and lots of listen and do, listen and make activities there where they don't have to use much English at all, but they're listening to lots and lots and gradually they begin to say words and phrases and, and start being able to do things on their own. I think that's the point I wanted to make, Mike. Sorry to interrupt. Is that no, no, what I like about TBL is that, and this is something that I usually talk about when we're doing sessions on test-based, is that it really respects the internal syllabus of the learner. Yes. Right? They would naturally start using language that they have been exposed to, and that's yes. usually yes. what's going to come out, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, that's right. Mike, you wanted to say something? No, really I, good yeah, of, just... That was a really good way of saying it. Yeah, no, I, I just was going to add something similar. And just, uh, I remember just teaching two-year-olds in Japan. I mean, you wouldn't even think that's possible, but, but just the simple act of painting and speaking and, and yeah. being in the class and, and they, eventually they, they pick things up and they, they start to, yeah. use, they, make, they make choices as you talk about in, uh, yes. in yes. chapter 12 of uh, winning the grammar wars, they make choices to, to yes. use and operate in the, in the language, mm. perform in the yes. language. Yeah. 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 Which brings me, Jane, to another myth that I think you've kind of debunked, but perhaps you could comment a little more on this, which is this idea that TBL only works with certain types of learners. So do you think that task-based learning is an effective approach for all kinds of language learners? Mm. Yes. And I would say that PPP only works with the 0.005% of very clever learners. <laughs> Right. <laughs> there are some children, some learners who learn no matter what. So you will always get one or two in a class, in a PPP class, who do succeed just because they're really, really clever and they can do the grammar analysis and everything. Task based learning is a very natural way of learning. And given that, just as you said, Leo, um, and as you were pointing out, Michael, if you're doing things with kids, um, and you're doing activities with kids, they soon pick up words for colours and, uh, you know, drawing a rainbow or, or playing bingo with colours or whatever. They, they want to join in. That's their and they know right? That, you know, they know that you're, and then they want to do it themselves and they want to call the bingo. So then they are using English words for calling the bingo. So um, 
it's highly motivating for them. It's, uh, it's giving, it's empowering them to do something mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and they get satisfaction from that and they feel that they're succeeding. Yes. Whereas with PPP, it's very negative because unless they get all the grammar structures right, they've failed. <laughs> That's right. And a lot, of, a lot of learners won't speak until they're perfect because yes. they're frightened of getting told off by their teachers for not getting it right. So, so we've talked about learners. Uh, what about teachers? A similar question, but from a, from a teaching perspective, do you think that TBL is a feasible approach for all teachers? I think... It would really help if textbook, task-based textbook writers had recordings of the tasks so that even teachers with not very much language ability could practice the kinds of language that came up in the task before they went into the lessons. And that's why um, they do need to be confident speaking English. It doesn't matter if their English is not perfect but they need to be confident in keeping the dialogue going in the classroom. I know when I was starting to teach French, um, I wasn't particularly good at French when I finished my French degree, um, but I remember thinking, right, how do I say this in French? Working on my French mm. before mm. going into class so that I could speak French most of the time in class. But I was worried about it, but, I knew that if I really tried and thought about it, I could. So it's not okay for teachers who are one lesson ahead of their learners. But then nor is PPP. Right. <laughs> um, I think the confidence to interact in English, then they need confidence in interacting in English. They also need confidence in saying, if they get questions like um please miss why is it this and they've no idea and often i don't have any idea they need the confidence to say well that's an interesting question i don't know the answer to that let's look it up in the dictionary or or can you look it up in the dictionary and tell me next lesson so it's the <laughs> um admitting that you don't know everything about language it's the confidence to admit that you're not sure. Uh, I so want to jump I in. Think, <laughs> yeah. You know, I think those two yeah, things, the willingness it's, it's to give it a go and the confidence yeah. to admit, well, no, actually, I don't know. Let's have a look. And you can go to the dictionary together the first few times. And then after that, you can say, well, you look that up. You ask the question. You look it up and come and tell us next lesson. And then, of course, you do go back home and you do look it up just in case they've forgotten. But, um, yeah. Leo? I was going to say, that's just letting the learner learn, right? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Mike, you wanted to say something. I mean, no, have, just, well, I'm biting my tongue here because there's so many things I want to say. Oh, there's so ahead. much. There's so much there, isn't there? Just, just how empowering being able to say, I don't know, or let's check it out can yes. actually be. Right. Like it's such, and, and you're right, Jade, it's, it's to get to that comfort, that level of comfort in your own skin mm. in front of these people that are looking to you as the sage on the stage in some cases, right? Like you, That's it's, a good it's, phrase. Yeah. it's so, oh, it's, it's so liberating to just be able to say, I don't know, let's check, <laughs> right? But mm -hmm. it's tough. And that's why I think Leo and I really 
like corpus linguistics is because there are so many corporate tools out there now where you can just stop your class and say let's check and just do this yes. just yeah. do this yeah. kind of yeah um get away from the prescriptive and do this descriptive approach where what's what's happening here <laughs> right like what is the yeah. rule let's look at this yeah. and uh technology affords us that opportunity now more than ever but I, again i think you touched on a good point it's not easy like it's not easy for teachers to say i don't know <laughs> but it's liberating yeah and also to trust their instincts because sometimes um when i'm my spanish is not very good i've never actually been to spanish classes and i've learned odds and you know i've been to spain a few times and i've picked up a lot of spanish and I can read Spanish fluently, but I can't speak it. And so quite often um, I say something in Spanish and I think, oh, is that right? And then someone will say, yeah, go on. You know, I don't know if it's right or not. And it worries me because my yeah. Spanish is really not very good. Well, people say, but it is actually, it's very good. You think you can say everything you want to say. Okay, fine. But I'm still feeling, mm -hmm. I should trust my intuitions more. And I think beginner teachers need to, especially native speaker teachers, when they're asked, why is it like this? And they have no idea. It's their own language, but they still don't know. They need to be given the confidence to say, well, I don't know. That's just what we say. <laughs> that sounds right to me. It sounds right. It's natural use. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. I studied English in a classroom for years, but felt I was not improving and not having fun either. I did not know how to learn a language. Then I found the Learn Your English online membership. My name is Victor and I am an LYE member. This membership is for people who are passionate about learning English in their own way. These are not classes. This is learning outside of the classroom. We learn by participating in activities just for us, effective and fun. What is included? Podcasts, reading clubs, meaningful conversations, language challenges, and much, much more. The special thing about the community is that the teachers will do anything they can to find the best way for you to learn. In my case, it has been through philosophy, psychology, and life in general, from readings and podcasts to meaningful conversations. Head over to the Learn Your English website for all the details. That is learnyourenglish.com. Ready to take control of your learning? Join me today in the Learn Your English student community. Hi everyone, my name is Carrie and I'm from Macau. This is Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. 大家好,我的名字是刘依慈,我来自澳门,现在听的是Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. And I think beginner teachers need to, especially native speaker teachers, when they're asked, why is it like this? And they have no idea. It's their own language, but they still don't know. They need to be given the confidence to say, well, I don't know. I was going to argue that maybe this is the problem with a lot of the teacher education programs is that really it's not putting, it's not really helping teachers develop this vulnerability to be mm. able to say, I don't know. It's again, mm. when, and it goes back, Jane, I'm, I'm gonna, I was talking to Mike about this when you went to answer the phone. I was thinking about winning the grammar wars, the book, and I was thinking about PPP and TBL. It's very much like the book. The way you guys, the way Dave wrote the book, I was thinking more from a perspective, prescri sorry, prescriptive 
um, approach, PPP is very prescriptive. Yes. Whereas TBL is very descriptive, right? Yes. So I think that's the beauty of it. And this links back to the book because from, from what I know, I know Dave was enjoying his retirement, his grandchildren, apparently cricket. I didn't know he was a cricket fan. When he decided to get back behind the screen and write the book, uh, perhaps we could talk a little bit about that, Jane, uh, and your contribution, because you wrote the introduction in the last two chapters. Um, mm. Mike and I read the book in like one day. That's how good it is. Oh, we're going to so recommend good. and we're going to be... so good, folks. Yeah. Well, one thing about descriptive and prescriptive that I just realized, mm. that in task-based learning, descriptive, it's the learners who are doing the descriptions. Right. Yes. In... PPP, it's the teachers and textbooks that are doing the prescriptions. Yes. This is how you should speak. This is how you should say yeah. this. Yeah. And I've never actually thought of that before. It was just something I, you said. It's just now. It was just yeah. now. I was like, huh, this is it. Because PPP is all about, and, I, and Dave wrote about this, it's all about conformity, right? Yes. There's no yeah. conforming to, yeah. Yeah. Huh. conforming to what the rules say conforming to what the prescriptive grammar books say and that's what the book rather really, than creating right. your own meanings using yeah, whatever right. language you can so that's what the book is all about winning the grammar war so perhaps we could talk a little bit about his impetus to write the book and your contribution as well <laughs> if you could give us a little i mean it's a great book it's a great book jane i have to say it. it's a great book i think every teacher Anyone who works with community, anyone who wants to know a little bit more about that language should read that book. Yes, I agree. And everyone that's read it says the same thing. Um, there's a lovely review on, um, on Amazon um, mm. by someone in South America. Oh, I wish I'd read this book about Pilar, I think in South America somewhere. I wish I'd read this book when I was doing my degree. It would have made me feel so much better. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, okay. Well, how did Dave start reading it? Um, uh, writing it. Sorry. Um, it was because he was very, very cross. <laughs> he was very cross. <laughs> with. Had nothing to do with the cricket match. I, I hope. Uh, well, it, <laughs> he did get cross if we lost the cricket. Yes. <laughs> and he did get. Totally, um, absolutely over the moon if we won. Yes. Um, but no, he got cross because Michael Gove was education minister in 2012. And he kept grumbling about um, mistakes that people at Westminster, members of parliament and secretaries at Westminster made in their email messages, grammar mistakes. Um, and he gave them all a copy of a particular grammar book by a man called Gwyn. Mm -hmm. And it's um, a prescriptive grammar book, and it goes back to rules, um, which actually must come from Latin grammars. Yes, um, right. Which obviously don't work. Um, and in the first, I think the first chapter or the second chapter of Dave's book, um, he he gives examples of these rules that don't work um and then he read he also gave example of gwyn using in his written text um sentences which did not which he would have considered wrong if he'd applied the rules 
And he got so cross with this grammar book and so cross with Michael Grove and also quite cross with people who write in the pedants' corners of uh, people who... <laughs> People who write in saying it should be fewer, not less, and so on. Right. Um, yeah. Or you mustn't split infinitives. Um, of course, it's perfectly okay to sometimes split infinitives, <laughs> um, depending on what you want to do. Um, that he wrote a rant. He wrote a, a rant. Oh, so it started as a rant. A that, rant. It, it kind of reads like that. The first, as you said, the first chapter well, certainly reads like that. Yeah. I, in the end, in the, in the book, the last chapter I did write in, that was Dave's original rant. And the publishers I took it to said, you can't print this, you can't publish this. <laughs> it's much too personal and, and, and whatever. Um, so it started off as a rant, but then it became more, you know, I had to help him tone it down a bit so that it would be <laughs> acceptable by any reader. Um, and I still think, you know, in chapter one, there's a little test, isn't there? It, it's a, or it's, one of the tests. Would you, would you say, well, I haven't got, I haven't got I it. I have it me, here. So. It's yeah. Uh, yeah. my brother. Oh, here. My brother is younger than me or my brother is younger than I. That was one. And he has a list of Come eight. You knock at a door. Someone asks, who's there? Would you reply? It is I. It's me, or I might say either A or B. And right. he gives about eight of them. And he mm -hmm. says the prescriptivists would say everything is A. But for some of yes. us, it would be B or sometimes both. Yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. I remember um, if, if you're on the phone, if you're talking to someone on the phone, um, and, then, and, and, you, and the person listening to you doesn't know who it is, or if you open a birthday card, right. um, and um and you don't know who it's from well what did they say right it's they because you don't know if it's he or she right. and, and he rants against that as well but i mean everybody says that now it's it's <laughs> i think it actually was acceptable in the 16th century this this gender neutral they um but Gwyn is doing it from latin grammar so he doesn't know about that anyway <laughs> yes so there's this um so he does this little he calls it a test i think it would be better to be a survey Right. I think to call it a survey might be better. I don't know. I don't know. You can tell me whether you think that's right. Um, so yes, he got cross with prescripting language, which makes people feel bad. Um, if they're asked to stand up and do a wedding speech, for example, at a friend's wedding, they say, oh, I couldn't possibly speak in public. My grammar's not good enough, or I might make a mistake. They feel bad about the way they speak. If they're pushed to speak in a higher status context from a context that they're normally used to mm -hmm. and it's they nearly always say oh I wouldn't be able to do that because um they feel that they're that they leave themselves open to criticism on their grammar and um the people that write into newspapers saying he made this mistake I'm not saying, look at all the things they didn't get wrong. Look at all the things that are okay. Right. <laughs> and the number, of, the number of things you can do with language, mm -hmm. oh, million, million times outweighs what you, the odd slip of the tongue or error that you might make. Huh. So he was looking at um, all the things we get right. 
and what natural language does look like. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. So, so instead of prescribing rules for people to learn to talk by and get their grammar right, um, it should be it should be looking at descriptions of language and looking at language to see how language in that context is used and how it works. So it might actually be just, yeah, go on. No, I was just going to say that I, I for one, am, a, as, as he describes, a serial offender. Um, <laughs> I, I make all kinds of mistakes, of course. Like we, we all do, but I, I think I, I think the the key when I was reading that um, definitely the first chapter, and I think you touched on it at the end as well, Jane, in your last chapter, was just the impact it has on the on the learners, right? And if we know that 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 success breeds more motivation, then then why yes. are we focusing, as you just said, why are we focusing on these these rules, which which as you said are, are unfounded and and the the will of the minority, I think, is what. Uh, Dave's describes. Yeah. It's, it's damaging, yeah. right? It really is. Yeah. Yes. And he actually talks a little bit about regional dialects in the UK, which mm -hmm. I thought was quite interesting because I think we could make draw similar parallels in, in Canada, certain where people from a particular region might have a, a dialect or voice that's suitable for comedy, but not for the evening news. Um, yes, yes. Just how this focus on standardization can be so debilitating, actually. Yes. But there are times when perhaps you do need to be standard, like right. at a big wedding speech. That's right. Um, um, although maybe you don't, if you've got enough character and if there are local people right. there, then you would do it in that context. You would, you would speak how you felt natural speaking. But I think the interesting thing is he says at one point, we all speak a lot of Englishes. Yes. And we mm -hmm. speak differently when we're, well, I know he spoke differently when he was in the pub in Yorkshire. He just went into a different dialect altogether. Mm -hmm. And David Crystal said exactly that in his talk at the IATEPL online conference. Right. Um, he said, well, I'm speaking to you in my public sort of speaking voice. But if I go to the pub, if I leave here now, I go to the pub in my hometown, um, I would be speaking. And then he did a little bit in kind of Welsh dialect. Well, it wasn't Welsh, but it was English with a very Welsh accent. Right. And we all have this ability to right. speak differently in different contexts. So there's not just one correct grammar. Mm -hmm. There are lots of correct grammars and lots of a more better, a better word than correct is appropriate. Yes. So mm -hmm. you speak appropriate to the context, appropriate to what you are doing and where you are. And your audience, right? Yeah, it's, it's what yeah. Uh, mm. the current research now, because you're talking a lot about, uh, you know, the accuracy, fluency, and complexity. And I was at a task-based language teaching conference in Ottawa last year, and they were talking about that one part, which is what they're calling now functional adequacy, which I think is basically, oh, that's, that's basically it. So they're incorporating that now into TBO um, research. Um, Jane, one of the things, I mean, I can't help but stop thinking that a lot of what we, we're, we're talking about here is really related yeah. to task-based language uh, learning. Um, a lot of it has to do with the prescriptives being the PPP of English language teaching, whereas TBL is a descriptive um, gang. But in chapter 11, I love the last two chapters because I, I, I find that some, there's some very good takeaways for people there. And you talk a little bit about how languages 
are acquired and how and you provide some suggestions at as to how people can develop their own language competence including those who speak the language as their first language so could you tell us a little bit more about that and there is one thing that really struck a chord with me which is how much real speaking time and i remember you talking about this a long time ago how much real speaking time do students get in a class and your number was about half a minute <laughs> much and, yeah. and and much of the speaking is the conformity is regurgitating display yeah. displaying language shows, yeah. yeah yeah so perhaps you could talk yeah. a little bit about that yeah well this is something that really struck me when i was doing my research with john sinclair um i was i was recording classrooms recording language teachers teaching and a teacher will ask a question and the learner will put a hand up and usually say as few words as possible in answer in case they get something wrong this is in a language lesson and the teacher will say yes good so the teacher gets oh, yes good and you could also say this so the teacher gets two turns right. for every one turn the learner gets and the learner is usually a bit frightened of getting something wrong so they'll make it small um so if you think well teacher talks at least two-thirds of the time and a third of the time you've got say 30 30 learners in your class so if a lesson is let's make it easy 45 minutes a teacher will speak for 30 minutes and a student will speak for students the whole class speaks for 15 minutes but divide that by 15s into 30 is half a minute per class okay so how many lessons do you have a week maybe four okay so what's that is that six hours my math is not very good um 45 that's an hour and a half no that's three hours a week isn't it yeah, yeah. three hours a week how many terms a year how many weeks in a year possibly 40 four threes are 12 so 120 um chances to speak so that would be 60 minutes of speaking a year wouldn't it per person so <laughs> <laughs> if you follow a task-based approach where you let the learners speak and you also help them speak in english during the planning and report and when they're doing the analysis of the texts they might be speaking in twos for three quarters of the lesson that's true hmm. so a 45 minute lesson they might be actually speaking or listening for 30 minutes so if they're talking in twos that's 15 minutes per lesson wow so add that up it makes a hell of a difference it certainly does it's traumatic and also it gives them the confidence to feel that they can speak so they're more likely to look up pen pals and speak online and go to other places where they get more speaking opportunities and more you know they'll enjoy their english more mm -hmm. which means they go off and do a bit of stuff in english online and use chat boxes and and that's all informal stuff too which is really good wow i have one more so that, that yeah. was that's the how much speaking do they get 
So that's one thing you asked me. The other thing you asked me was, was what? It was related to chapter 11, when you talk about how languages are acquired and you give them some suggestions to how people can develop their language, their own language competence. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one thing that I think it needs to be looked at is um, when learners leave school, um, when I, in England it happens, they leave school at 17 and then they get a job and the employers say they can't, they're no good at English. They write, they write emails that are not grammatical, although they do, they can't. And it's probably because they're asked to write company English, <laughs> but they've never worked for that company before. How do they know what kind of, what kind of, do they, they're used to writing chatty emails to their friends or chatty WhatsApp messages or Twitter right. tweets or something. Mm -hmm. So they've never used form of English to interact spontaneously like that before. So they need to know what the company linguistic guidelines are. So it's up to the, it's up to their new, um, I always think they need a buddy. They need someone in the office who will say, look, this is how we write emails. You know, read, read this, read this um, chain of emails and see how we're doing it. Or read this chain of whatever. Read, um, this is the kind of way we report a meeting. Mm -hmm. Or this is how you might make a suggestion for a meeting. Have a look at these. There needs to be much more help from the actual new, the place of employment. Mm -hmm. Because you can't teach that at school. They're all going to different places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what they the need is a... Yeah, what they need is a sympathetic interlocutor, right? They need someone who can listen, yes, yes, guide them, fill in, fill in the gaps. Yes, where where they appear. Yeah, yes. Very like you have, you always learn the structure of a company when you go to a new company. You know that you're the lowest of the low, and you know that the structure goes up yeah. to senior management and so on. But you need to know the language used in between people on the same level as you, and then going up a structure, how that changes. And language will change. Mm -hmm. yeah. Wow, I have so many things I want to talk to you about. Well, <laughs> They're so things? off topic. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's really, it's really interesting because I'm working a lot with first year university students and they're international students who are coming over. And I think that that actually is the, the, the biggest issue is that if they just had a little bit of social capital, right? If they just had a little bit of someone who could introduce or help them make that um, transition yeah. beyond the teacher, because there's only like, there's not much an EAP instructor mm -hmm. can do in terms of helping them make friends. Because as you said, it's a yes. lot of it is the unspoken culture, right? The, yes, right? yes. This is how we do it in this company, right? Yeah. Yes. And when I worked at Aston University, the Chinese students used to come over and they were very bright, but they couldn't speak English really. Only very few of them could speak. A lot of them could write quite well. Um, and they obviously spoke enough to pass their IELTS test. But um, they, what they found was they couldn't understand other people on their course speaking in the coffee break afterwards or when they're in the lift together. What was, what, what was, what, what, what was that lecture? No, I can't remember you, the name of the lecturer. What was Ian talking about when he said, when he said this and that and the other? 
Um, you know, I have absolutely no idea. Um, and they couldn't understand that, um, that talk about the lecture that they'd just been to. They couldn't switch into it because it was informal, spontaneous talk <laughs> on the same academic topic, but it was a different kind of talk. We called it coffee time talk or, right. you know, right. um, so they need academic English is not just about learning how to read up research articles. It's about learning how to talk about lectures, to interact spontaneously about things that have happened in tutorials. You and it's, it's about learning turn taking. Mm -hmm. yes, um, yes. That it's okay to answer your tutor immediately. You don't have to wait and respect, you know, you can interrupt a tutor in, in, in a tutorial. You can actually say, but excuse me, in England. And you can't do that if you're in Finland. That would well, be totally wrong to do that if you were Finnish, in a Finnish situation. And I think going we back to the book, going back to the yeah. book, sorry to interrupt, but going back to the book in chapter nine, where you talk a little bit about heads and tails in, in spoken English, right? And, and yes. just how tails, right? They actually signal, hey, I'm ready for you to jump in now. So if we're in the lift yes. or the elevator and I'm an international student and two of, the, two of my classmates are, are chatting about the lecture we just had and they both stop and maybe they leave with this, this one tail, but they're actually inviting me to join in and by not joining in or not, not, not recognizing that tail as a, as, a, as a moment of entry into the conversation, I'm missing yes. out, right? And, and uh, that can, and then knowing, that, I don't want to say, yeah, well, it might determine my success or failure at university, right? Because maybe I don't make that many friends because I, I'm not aware of that. And then I, I, I don't feel that well at university and I go home and, you know, <laughs> I'm getting dramatic. But I think that's why I love yeah. the book, because it takes something as small as, mm -hmm. as, a, as a language point, if you will, and shows just how, it, you know, it's important that we, we don't. We, 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 we empower our students to notice these things, right? So that they can yeah. perform when we're not there with them. And I think mm. TBLT and this descriptive approach, as you, as you just said, it's, it's for students. The descriptive mm. approach is for students. There's mm. one thing I wanted to add to this. Um, again, going back to that conference in, uh, in Ottawa, the task-based conference, um, I went to a very interesting presentation and it was this uh, woman who works at a college in Canada I think it's in London, I think. I can't remember exactly. But one of the things she did is she interviewed and she pulled all the college and university professors in three different universities and she asked them about their expectations of international students. And believe it or not, grammatical accuracy was not one of them. But their <laughs> ability to participate, to ask questions, you know, in tutorials, everything that we were just talking about, those are things that students need to be able to do in an academic environment. If they make yes. spelling mistakes, if they make grammatical mistakes, as long as the message is clear. It right? doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter. Yeah, that's right. No, that's absolutely true. Yeah. Uh, one of the things, Jane, to go back to, um, you were talking about, in, I, was, I couldn't help but think about input because that's one of the, the three essentials that you talk a lot about and you mentioned this in the, in the last chapter you talk about the idea of learners choosing a course because there are a lot of language courses out there and with all due respect some of them are terrible because they're just basically teaching grammar point after grammar point yeah you talk about a, a course that is input rich what would such a course look like okay well 
Um, one way I've really improved my Spanish mm. is by following a little program called Notes in Spanish. I don't know whether you know it. No. It's all one really. word, Notes in Spanish. Okay. And it is a couple, a married couple, an English man and a Spanish wife who record conversations about topics. So they have a little conversation. Um, I, there was uh, whatever's topical at the time. Talking about um, the weather, for example. Yes, or if there's been a flood, or, or I can remember one about Los Bomberos. <laughs> right, Los Bomberos, is that, is that firefighters or something? Yes, yeah. mm -hmm. um, you see, I didn't even, couldn't even remember the word in English, um, but I know it was about Los Bomberos. Um, <laughs> and it was about, um, you know, they were just talking about, well, if we have a boy, would you like him to be a firefighter? Well, no. I mean, they didn't know what they were going to talk about. That was the topic. Right. And they just talked to each other, spontaneous conversation. Um, and they recorded a little, you know, they recorded themselves just chatting together. Now, that would be an input rich thing. Okay. And then I used to, um, I've got a bad back, so I sometimes do exercises lying on the floor. And I used to switch my computer on to repeat one episode of Notes in Spanish six or seven times until... I understood every how it all worked. I understood not only the sense, but I could pick out the phrases and I'd mm. and I'd think, oh yes, I can say that now. I'd try and speak along with them. And that's kind of very rich um language. And then, you know, I did episode after episode, and that really did help. Oh. And also seeing it written down helped because I got the transcripts for that. And then I could do an analysis of prepositions and paras and pause and I know you know nice. that's always a nightmare that, mm. and estar and ser and all that stuff um, which the grammar books always contrast um, so I could do my own little my own little analyses of those right so that would be an input rich course and um, quite a lot of textbooks I've noticed nowadays do have um, quite a lot of listening and quite a lot of reading comprehension <clears throat> but it needs to be kind of reading comprehension that's a accessible and b not too terribly distorted from the norm mm. i mean if it's a if it's a um what we sometimes did was we got people to re to write to read something if it was very complicated the way it was written we'd get someone a friend of ours to read it and then to rewrite it simply for us. If you had to teach this to a 10 year old, could you write that text again from memory for a 10 year old? So that they weren't thinking of what structure shall I put into this? And this is one of the, um, you know, they were thinking of just getting those meanings across in a, in a, in a natural way, right. but much simpler. And we all have this ability to do this. Mm -hmm. um, but we are not feeding in structures. And this is where Mike Long and I would differ. Because right. Mike Long, I, haven't, I have to own up that I have not read his, all his book. I've flipped through bits of it, but I haven't read it all. Okay. But I know that he goes for pushed input. No, he, no there's pushed output and there's, um, what does he call it? Seeded input. Mm -hmm. 
he would put a lot of a particular structure embedded in into a text and i would be totally opposed to that right because you're seeding it with something that's maybe not very natural and you're you're missing out on what was there before uh, as long as it's accessible enough I like that. you can change the text to write it for a different audience you can rewrite the text so the meaning comes across for a different audience that's fine mm. because we do this all the time don't we yes mm. we're telling funny stories and we'll tell them a different way to one person and we will tell them to another right absolutely so that's okay but to think well i need to get a lot of example to the present perfect in this story that would be totally contorting language and making it unnatural yeah wow so much food for thought <laughs> so yes um one of there is one last point jane um also from the book and i wasn't expecting to read this um and a lot of our listeners are trying to raise bilingual children. My kids are going to French immersion and I don't think they're going to be able to come out of French immersion fluent in French because again, it's a lot of reading comprehension and feeding those grammar McNuggets. Um, so in the final chapter, you discuss ways in which parents could help children develop and extend their language skills. Perhaps you could talk a little bit about that because I think a lot of parents don't know, myself, I mean, I try to give my children relevant, rich uh, access to input. My, my children are, are motivated, they use the language, but a lot of parents don't know how to go about this. Perhaps you could give them some sort of mm. advice or mm. guidelines. Mm. Well, where to start? <laughs> um, oh, well, from an early age, um, it's talk to your children. Mm -hmm. even, if, even if it's saying really silly things to them, they're learning turn-taking and they're learning, they'll gradually realize what, what things mean. But it's definitely really, really interesting to see how children do actually learn to interact. Even before they've got words that are recognizable to us, they will still wait for you to say something when the intonation goes right. Apparently, babies, recognize intonation patterns in the womb. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. Mm. There's, been, there's been some research that unborn children, they can hear. Mm. Um, unborn children react differently when there's a different language being spoken, or if mm. someone changes language, there'll be, a, there'll be a, an awareness of something different going on. Mm. So they're already, accustomed to hearing the tunes of language and they'll be already accustomed to hearing one person speaking another person speaking so even when they're born they have some idea oh okay now there's someone moving their mouth right. and, and it sounds like what it did before i mean obviously not consciously but and even tiny babies when they're googling ooh, going ooh ah they're still turn taking they'll go ooh ah and then they'll wait for you to say something and then you say something and they'll respond. Right. It's amazing when you watch them. Yeah. So they learn turn-taking first and then gradually, gradually their, their language develops. But to get, help it develop faster, definitely talk to them. Um, it drives me nuts. I see parents, um, I used to collect my grandchildren from school 
and um, parents picking up their grandchildren, get your coat, come on, and they're still talking on their phones, and they're walking off in the playground with their child still on their phones talking to someone else. They, they should be saying to the child, um, if you say, what did you do at school today? That's too general, because they'll say nothing. Yes. Or they'll say, woof, I don't know, I can't remember. Yes. You have to say, um, what game did you, you need to be very specific. Yes. What game did you play at playtime? Or who did you play with at playtime today? Or what did you have for lunch? And who did you talk to at lunchtime? You need to be very specific about something. Yeah. Yes. And then they'll have something to say. Whereas if you say, what was your favorite lesson? Oh, I don't know. You know, it's too <laughs> I hate friendly. math. They'll probably just say, I hate math. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, so it's true. you need it's to true. be very specific. Yeah. And then you take, you take it from there. Right. Um, and not be on your phone all the time to your friends, you know. Right. Um, also, when, you, when the kids are watching telly, you stick them in front of the telly so that you can be peaceful in the kitchen getting tea or something. Um, what were you watching on telly? What's the story? Oh, that sounds interesting. Tell me the story. Or tell me what they said. Mm -hmm. Or, um, you know, so, to, so that when they're watching it, or go in there and watch a little tiny bit with them. Just watch a clip, just one minute, less than a minute, mm -hmm. so that you've got something to hang on to. And then you can say, hey, when that guy was doing that in the park, um, you know, what happened after that? Mm -hmm. I wasn't there. So the child has got a reason to tell you what was happening. Or you start watching a program with them and then drift off and then ask them what happened at the end. And then the other thing um, which my daughters always did with their kids that I thought was brilliant um, was they'd learnt from somewhere. Um, at the end of the day when you're doing story time, you know, when it's bedtime or just before they go to bed, you have what happened today and you together go through what the child did that day. And I can remember doing this with all my grandchildren. Some of them used to make up the most amazing stories. <laughs> That's my son, for sure. That they had imagination things, imaginary things that happen. <laughs> and it's, it's, you know, this creative language or, or you know, it's, it's, it's really good. So getting them to narrate longer than just one answer or something which i think jane is being somewhat hindered by exams and i think you talk a little bit about that the effect of exams rather than which is a word that i always like to borrow from you and dave is this idea of linguistic risk taking right creative yeah. experimentation um but it's all about grades now it's all about grades and passing and and, and I find that I tell my children, like, I don't want you guys to just pass. I want you to tell me what you're getting from this. And what I try to do with my children, everything that you said is, are things that I try to do with my children, asking them, what was the best part of your day? Why? And then we can explore those, um, those areas a little more. Um, so a lot of it, I think, this is, I think that's, that goes back to TBL again, which is why I think TBL is the only methodology the only approach that we have that resembles the way languages are actually acquired because we learn yes yeah by using not learn and then and then use so this has been fantastic uh we don't we want to end this on a high note mike and i have what we call a, a rapid fire question so we're only going to ask you two because we took up too much of your time but 
I think the only question that we really have is if you could give a piece of advice to a new graduate, like of a, of a TESO course or a CELTA course, what would you say to them? Oh my goodness. How many pieces of advice have I got? Oh, you can, two, three, it's really up two. to you. Okay. Um, one is be confident in your, in your handling of the class that you will always know more than they do as far as language goes. You've got so much language in your heads and you have a feel for when it's right. Um, and so just feel confident and that confident feeling you want to make the kids feel confident too if, if, if they're teaching children or the learners need to feel confident so always react positively to the content of what they're saying so don't do well Yes, that's interesting, but you made a mistake with your grammar. Or you should say, I went, not I, not I go. Right. So always react to what they tell you. And then you can, re you can rephrase. Oh, you went to so-and-so. Well, that's really interesting. So what did you do there? Did you see the so-and-so? So always continuing any effort a learner makes to communicate, encourage. Um, And I think also if you're doing tasks, it's really important to bring them on to that reporting backstage. And then when you're hearing, the, you won't have time to hear probably all the groups reporting back, but you can pick some of the groups to report back. It's very important that you react positively to things that they've said. So you could get the other groups, you can, always push it onto the learners to do the work so that you say rather than you evaluating the reports getting getting the other groups to write down one interesting thing that each person has said so that they have to give you what they found interesting about each of the reports like giving them a purpose right for listening giving them a purpose for listening yeah. but also right. rather than yeah, well, you as well saying, well, that was interesting. What I liked about that was. Mm -hmm. um, yes. And then, okay, now let's have another group now. Remember, you're going to write down, instead of giving them a purpose to listen, <coughs> but then hearing what they're saying. Right. So it's always, it's always being positive and encouraging. And yes, that's really good. Um, we've all got something out of that. You know, that, that feel of satisfaction at the end. Um, and helping students to feel good about their language, I think. Helping their learners to feel good about what they're doing. To encourage them to go out and read more, to take more, if they're in, a language, if they're in an environment where English is spoken. I mean, like you're in Canada, so there's English all around them. Are you in an English-speaking area? Yes, you are. Yeah. There's English all around them. Yeah. So going out and finding examples from the world outside and bringing in those examples of right. something to the classroom and talking about those things. Uh, so that's how many things? That's three, isn't it? That's three. Three or four. Three. That's good. That's three. Oh, I, think, I think a lot of graduates are going to benefit from this.
Absolutely. It's, it's learning in the wild, eh, Mike? We call it as learning in the wild outside yeah. the classroom. The boundary classroom is, it's stifles creativity. Students are not able to, to do much with the language when they're in the classroom, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Jane, this has been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, do you have any final messages? Um, we can talk a little. Oh, by the way, everyone, uh, Winning the Grammar War, Dave Willis and Jane Willis's book. Uh, we're going to have yeah. this in the show notes. Uh, Jane has kindly shared some documents, which we will also share okay. in the show notes. Um, Jane, mm -hmm. we just wanted to thank you. And if you have any final message that you want the world to hear, I think this will um, be the right, my, the right time. Well, I think the biggest thing I would like people to do and teachers and learners to do is push publishers to, to produce, to allow people to publish textbooks that are task-based and not be frightened of it. Because a huge number of teachers out there, a new, huge number of teacher trainers would like, understand why task-based learning is good. But because the books, a lot of books are still very structurally based, especially books in overseas countries, a lot of them are very structurally based. Yes. They feel they have to teach the other way. Yeah. So if you've got, if you do go and teach abroad and if the textbook is a structurally based textbook, look at the end of the unit and think, well, what's, what topic is there? Let's put some tasks in somewhere and um, let's do a task in every, for every unit. Let's make one. Let's record someone else doing the task so that at least they can taskify, yes. they can tweak their textbooks and taskify their textbooks and give them the grammar exercises to do at home. <laughs> All right, Mike. Um, wow. That was it. That it was, was a really two-hour interview. Yeah, that was two hours of just really fascinating insight, right? Because I've always thought, I've always been familiar with task-based language teaching, mm -hmm. but I, I thought that it was interesting to hear the subtleties, right? Like yeah. in terms of how it kind, of, how how she developed her own kind of approach based on what she had learned from Prabhu and mm -hmm. um, how they were able to add to it and how that was often guided by the students, right? And students not at the forefront always. Right. So, so they're working with it and then they're noticing that these gaps are in the model. So they're adding kind of this in, um, iterative approach to designing TVLT. I just thought that was really interesting. Well, and you know, it's it, funny. Yeah. You just mentioned this, um, what well, you just said now, Mike, um, that TBLT puts the learners at the forefront. If you think about it, um, I think that's the problem that we have with language teaching at the moment is that the teacher still wants to be in control. The methodology is one that empowers only the teacher and there is very little left for the learner to control. Yeah, and, and seconds, right? Like even mathematically, I just love how she broke that down. And she does that in the book as well, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah. It's just mathematically and this whole idea of accountability, you know, mm -hmm. are we actually giving this, the learners what they want and need, right? And, and as she talked a lot 
um, as she discussed in, in, uh, in, at several points, that it's at the end of the day, it's about communication and, and helping the learners produce so they can function in, in a task and hopefully in, in society at large. And, and mm-hmm. I think that certain approaches do that more than others. And I would just reiterate that we tend to subscribe to the theory that TBLT presents more opportunities for the learners to actually pr- perform in the language mm-hmm. and, and work, with, um, uh, work with authentic language. And I think two words that we had thought about and discussed ahead of time, but I think came up regularly throughout the episode was, were the words uh, authenticity mm-hmm. and you know, meaningful. Yeah. Meaningfulness, right? Like so, so meaningful communication in authentic tasks or for authentic uh, purposes. This is just yeah. really, really reassuring. For yeah. me, two things. Number one, Mike, is you saying that you have always been familiar with task-based language uh, teaching. It's almost like when people say that they are familiar with, it's like the communicative approach. A lot of people are familiar with the communicative approach, but they don't yeah. really have a very, uh, perhaps a more profound understanding of the communicative approach. And I think TBLT kind of follows suit in that people think they know it. They have heard of it. They throw it in, in teacher training courses here and there, but nobody they think they're doing it, but they're not. And the other thing that really caught my eye and we didn't have a chance to explore this because again, it's a two hour podcast is when she talked about how the teacher is actually manipulating all the conversation in the classroom. When we think about the IRF, like initiation, response, follow-up, or feedback, the teacher controls two. The student right. controls one. And then she said the thing that with the response, the student is so afraid, is lacking confidence, that they only just give you like a little bit. A little, a little bit. Yeah. And that's the other communication that they're going to be um, producing throughout the lesson. That's, that, to me, was fascinating. Um, and I yeah. think that it's, it also provides some guidance for us. Like, you know, at the end of the day, what do we really want? We want students to be able to learn outside the classroom. And in order to do that, we actually have to facilitate or provide opportunities for them to develop those skills. So it's not only working with these forms and language and patterns, it's also the building of habits, right? The ability to notice language, to, to build hypotheses, to, to reframe and reuse and to recycle, right? Until they get it right. And, and that's where the real growth comes from. And those are the skills that they'll need to draw on when they're out in the jungle, right? When they're using oh, yes. language learning, in the wild. <laughs> learning in the wild, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think overall it was a great podcast, especially the, for me, it was the metaphor of prescriptivism and, and descriptivism. I think a lot of that, a lot of my association throughout the episode was PPP is more prescriptive, whereas TBL is more descriptive, right? Right. Even yeah. I thought that was a teacher. great point. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That was a keen observation, yeah. Yeah. I hope everyone enjoys this podcast, this episode. I think it's by far one of my favorite ones, along with Patsy. And all, I mean, every podcast that we record is our favorite. They're all, <laughs> they're all special. Yeah. Yeah. Um, great, but folks. I think, so yeah. I think that's about it. Uh, well, Leo, thanks again for facilitating and, and starting us off today. I definitely had a lot of fun. Um, and I really look forward to doing this again sometime soon. 
Likewise, Mike, likewise. It was a great interview. And we really hope this is something that will probably get out there and a lot of teachers will hopefully switch the way they teach, move away from teaching and kind of like move them, themselves closer to the idea that um, the whole point of uh, language is not to be teaching a language, but to be learning the language. So thank you for listening. All right, everyone. Thanks a lot. And we'll see you next time. You've been listening to Teacher Talking Time, brought to you by Learn Your English. Ready to take control of your education? You're in the right place. Teaching, professional development, learning. Expand your world with Learn Your English.